Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 165 for the first half of October 2017. The misconception that I'm going to talk about today is under the broad category of little things in space, with three examples, microgravity, vacuum, and temperature. The idea for this episode came from my last appearance on the Reality Check podcast, episodes 448 and 449, where I talked somewhat about microgravity and vacuums. They're topics that are, well, they have a lot of misconceptions between them, and I think that they really deserve their own treatment on this podcast, and the latter is also related to temperature, so it's thrown into the mix. Also, Honestly, uh, based on my own podcast listening habits, I suspect that if you don't already listen to the reality check, you probably aren't going to listen to the individual episodes where I mention I was on, and so this won't be a repeat, probably for most of you. So first up, microgravity. What is it? We can guess from the name, micro meaning 10 to the negative 6, or just more generically, small, and gravity being, well, gravity. So, it's a little bit or a small gravity. We often say that people in space experience microgravity, but all except maybe about a dozen humans have gone no more than a few hundred miles above Earth's surface, which creates a disconnect. Many people think that either just a few hundred miles up and all or almost all of the gravitational force from Earth goes away, or they don't understand why people would experience a microgravity environment when they're just another 5 to 10% above the center of the planet than we are when we're on the surface. So, here's what's going on. We can start by talking about gravity in general, in that gravitational force follows an inverse square law. I've talked about this before, such as with light, which also follows an inverse square law, also sound. It means that the power of that thing, light, sound, gravity, whatever, changes by 1 over the square of the distance that is that change. So if you double the distance between two objects, the pull of gravity is going to decrease to 1 quarter, or 25%, or 0.5 squared. Or 2 squared, it's 4, and 1 over that. Lots of ways of thinking about it, but basically it's an inverse square. If you have the distance, in other words, if you bring the two objects closer together, then the gravitational force is going to be four times as much. If you bring them three times closer together, then it will be nine times as much. So, if you are 10% farther away from the center of the planet, then the gravitational pull is going to be around 85% as much. That is, 1 divided by 1.1 squared. So, if you weigh about 150 pounds or 70 kilograms on the surface of the planet, if you were stationary above Earth at that distance, then the scale would read around 125 to 130 pounds, or a bit under 60 kilograms. I'm dealing with round numbers here, hopefully that's obvious. So, I think that we can all agree that that weight, uh, 125, 130 pounds, or 60 kilograms, is not microgravity. I still feel heavy. It's probably easier to lose 20 pounds by dieting and exercise for a few months if you need to, rather than going into space. But, right there, going into space and going into orbit 
is how you experience microgravity. It's the idea of orbiting as opposed to just being stationary above the ground. What all satellites, artificial, occupied, or natural, are doing is that they're traveling in an orbit, or they're falling, or they're escaping the planet. But if they are at a stable elevation, or stable altitude, I guess it would be, above the surface, they are in a stable orbit. They are falling, though, at just the right speed to cancel out the force of gravity. If that doesn't make sense, think about being on a roller coaster, or if you're like my mother and don't like roller coasters, uh, think about traveling in a fast elevator that's going down. There's that moment where it seems almost as though the floor is falling out from under you, which it pretty much literally is, and then you catch up to it and everything seems normal. The moment of when it's falling out from under you is when you experience less weight because the floor is no longer pushing up at you as it normally is. If the elevator were much faster than allowed, then you could feel weightless for probably a few seconds. It's the same thing with astronauts in a spaceship in orbit. They're falling at just the right amount to make it seem as though gravity is no longer being experienced. So to their point of view, relative to their spaceship, they're weightless. You can experience the same thing on Earth in a drop tower ride at many amusement parks for a few seconds. Or you can experience if you pay a lot of money and go on a special airplane, often nicknamed Vomit Comets. These planes do just what the elevator would do in the thought experiment that I talked about before. They fly up pretty high, and then they fly down at just the right speed so that the plane is falling, or flying down, at just the same rate that gravity is pulling you down, and so you experience up to roughly 30 seconds of weightlessness, or microgravity. These planes can also fly at variations on that in order to simulate different gravitational fields, uh, say like Mars or the Moon, and hence you can also get on these flights and do experiments that require microgravitational environments or gravitational environments similar to that on another planet. The catch is that those experiments have to be done in under a minute. Anyway, at this point, if you've been paying attention, you may be wondering why or how it makes sense that astronauts can keep falling and keep falling and keep falling and never hit the ground. After all, as I just said with these airplanes that can do this uh, type of microgravity environment, they only work for about a minute or less. The key is the second component to an orbit, flying across the surface. So you're not just falling down towards it, but you're also traveling at a right angle to that downward motion across it. It's just like a car, only it's in the air or in space. To achieve orbit, you have to travel across the surface at a fast enough speed that the surface falls away from you due to its curvature, hence requiring a spherical body and hence why flat earthers refuse to accept space travel, but that's a different story for a different podcast episode. The analogy that I like to explain what's going on in this scenario is to picture three people trying to throw a ball. You can picture a baby, you, and the Hulk, or perhaps Superman, whichever is your own favorite brand of comics. Before you all email me, I do know that Superman is not the same as the Hulk. Let's just use them as an example of really strong characters. Okay, so the three of you start out at the top of a tall building. A baby has a ball, 
and the baby throws it as fast as it can horizontally. The ball's not going to go very far before it goes splat on the ground below the building. Now you're up, and you throw the ball as hard as you can. You, hopefully, are going to throw it farther than the baby. But while it travels parallel to the surface of the ground for a bit of time, soon gravity is going to dominate, pulling it down much faster than your throw pushed it across, and it will hit the ground. Or a person, in which case you should hide and let the baby take the blame. Next up is Superman or the Hulk, or, again, whoever is your favorite super strong character, from comics or whatever. They throw the ball horizontally, again, but they throw it really, really hard. They throw it really fast, and they throw it fast enough horizontally that even though gravity is going to pull it and accelerate the ball down, it's traveling fast enough across the surface of the Earth that the curvature of the Earth allows the ball to stay at the same height above the surface. In other words, the ball is falling down, but the surface of the Earth is falling down just as fast. Hence, orbit is achieved, and a little bit later the ball is going to come around and smack the sucker in the back of the head. Or, if your superhero of choice were showboating, and they threw the ball harder than they needed to, then the ball would travel across the surface of the planet faster than the ground falls away, and the ball would end up not in orbit, it would just leave the influence of our planet and go off into space. So now, hopefully you know why orbits work, or how they work, and what the tie-in is to microgravity. To make it more explicit, the spacecraft still experiences most of Earth's gravity as we do on the ground, but it's falling at a rate to cancel gravity, and it doesn't hit the planet because it travels across the planet fast enough that its falling is canceled by the ground curving away. Why is this called microgravity? It's because it's never perfect. If, perhaps, everything were ideal, as in, we existed with nothing else in the universe, the Earth were a perfect sphere, as in, perfect, perfect sphere with no people on it, that kind of thing, uh, and it were all a homogenous, uniform mixture of stuff, then that kind of orbit could probably exactly cancel out gravity, and you would, for all intents and purposes, be in a zero-gravity environment. But... The universe has other stuff in it, and Earth has things like mountains and oceans and people and rocks with different densities, and things called mass cons, which are concentrations of mass in different spots that all conspire to perturb the gravitational field a little bit, making it such that you never get a truly perfect zero-gravity environment in orbit. So, could you do it if you escaped Earth's orbit and went really far away from stuff? Well, again... No. It's perhaps conceivable that you could find some spot in the universe where the combined pull of gravity from everything around you is zero, but it's unlikely. As soon as a star moves slightly in its orbit in a distant galaxy, the combined gravitational field shifts slightly, and you're no longer in zero gravity. Still, very, very, very close. Good enough for government contract work, but it's never perfect. And that's why this gets to the first billing of my Little Things in Space episode. Next up, because I'm not good with transitions, is a vacuum. One of the very, very few words in the English language which has two-letter U's in a row. In fact, it's one of only two words in the English language that are semi-common, the other one being continuum. 
Anyway, English lesson aside, the first definition of, or I guess English trivia aside, the first definition of vacuum in my Apple Dictionary widget is, quote, a space entirely devoid of matter, which is how most people think of the term if they're not doing housework. But the first sub-definition is, quote, a space or container from which the air has been completely or partially removed. It's the merging of these two definitions that form what a practical vacuum is in real life. Ideally, a vacuum is that first definition. A true vacuum is when all matter is removed from a certain volume of space. However, that's not technically possible. And creating something close to a vacuum is really, really, really hard on Earth with our current technology. More on that in a moment. On Earth, if you're near sea level, we experience about one bar of pressure, or one atmosphere by definition, or around 100 kilopascals or 14.5 pounds per square inch. There are a lot of different units for pressure. On Mars, the pressure of the atmosphere at the surface is roughly 0.6% of Earth. That's 0.6 millibars. Creating that kind of vacuum on Earth is possible, but it's hard. And creating one that's more than 60 times better to less than 1 one-hundredth of a millibar and to have it survive in a spacecraft and burrow into Mars is currently impossible, or at least it is for the French. Some of you may remember about two years ago it was announced that the next probe to Mars called InSight was delayed from 2016 to 2018. The reason is that this probe had a ground penetrator that would have a seismometer, which is an instrument that's called, in this case, the Seismic Experiment for Interior Structure, or SIS for short, and it's provided by a team from France. The requirements of this probe for this instrument is that it must maintain a vacuum less than 0.01 millibar in order to detect what it was designed to, which is motions as small as the width of an atom, or 0.01 nanometer, or about 10 picometers. So, really, 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 really tight, tight constraints on this kind of vacuum. Now, let's go to Pluto, where New Horizons measured a pressure of 3 to 60 microbars, which is around the vacuum that SICE must maintain. Now we go to the moon. Yes, there actually is an atmosphere of sorts on the moon, or what you might technically call uh, an exosphere due to its very low density. More on exospheres in maybe 5 to 10 minutes. It has an atmospheric pressure, or an exospheric pressure on the surface, of around a femtobar, or 10 to the minus 15, that of Earth's surface. Really low pressure. Much lower than Mars, much lower than Pluto. Really, really, really low. But then, there's interstellar space, where the numbers I found were around 10 zeptobars. Zepto, the SI prefix, is... 10 to the minus 21. So we're talking around 10 to the minus 20 bars. Really, really, really low pressure. That's, uh, what, about a factor of a million less than the pressure on the surface of the moon. And the moon is a factor of, if I'm doing the math in my head, because I didn't actually write this down, maybe a factor of a billion less than Pluto. Pluto is a factor of 100 to 1,000 less than Mars. And Mars is a factor of 500 no, 200 less than Earth. So that's sort of the scale of pressures. And even in space, while we're talking about low pressures, that's not zero. 
10 to the minus 20 is not equal to zero. It's really low. It's really close. It's a really good vacuum, especially relative to what we can make on Earth, but it's not a true vacuum. And that's why this is, again, in this episode of little things in space, as opposed to zero things in space. Now, with that said, there is a side note before I get to temperature, and that has to do with if you're in a spacecraft, or even an airplane for that matter, and there is explosive decompression, you are not sucked out of the craft. You are blown out because of the air rushing from inside to outside into the vacuum. Not true vacuum, but close to vacuum. You're blown out with that air. So, kids, you can tell your parents, you can tell your classmates, you can tell your teachers, science doesn't suck, it blows. Moving on, the last bit is temperature. I have a clip for this one coming from Crow 777's podcast, and while the original clip that I wanted to play was about 10 minutes long, I decided to spare you all and took just about the first 47 seconds. And so when, when, you, when you really start thinking about the satellites and you, and you start studying the, the, the thermosphere, uh, I, I made a couple of videos about this. The, t- the temperature in the thermosphere is supposed to be around 2,000 degrees Celsius, gets up, upwards of 2,000 degrees Celsius. And, and that's uh, the temperature is a measure of, of basically the kinetic energy in a substance. And, and uh, so the, there's supposed to be very few uh, uh, molecules, atoms, you know, very, very little matter up in the thermosphere. And so the, the temperature is really hot, but they tell us that everything is the, – all the particles of matter are so far apart that you can't actually put a thermometer up there and measure the temperature. So it would actually show a very low temperature. So it, it, gets, it gets really confusing. Well, what's the temperature up there? After that clip, the guest and the host of the podcast, uh, the guest being Brian Mullen, goes on to say that, well – Uh, because temperature is weird and stuff gets really hot up there, uh, satellites are fake. Yeah, it's kind of almost a young Earth creationist kind of argument where uh, because these two numbers that are hundreds of millions don't match, everything is 6,000 years old or less. Yeah, that kind of thing. So uh, temperature. Now, as he said, temperature can be thought of as the motion of molecules. If molecules are moving really fast, they have more energy, and we experience that as heat or an increase in temperature. Absolute zero is the temperature at which all molecular motion stops, and there is nothing that we know of or have created that gets to absolute zero. However, a few years ago, a group of scientists got a substance below absolute zero using a different technical definition of temperature, so let's not get into that because I don't entirely understand it. And moving on, temperature. It is motion of particles. So what happens when you have very, very few particles? Those particles can still individually have a very high temperature, meaning they have a lot of energy, which is moving really, really fast, or they are moving really fast. But how could you tell? How could you feel it? Could you feel it? Could you measure it? Could that temperature be conveyed to something else? To answer those questions, we have to go back to a vacuum, or not a vacuum. On Earth, at sea level, we have a pretty thick atmosphere, all things considered relative to other rocky solar system bodies. In one cubic meter of air, or a little over a cubic yard of air, there are on the order of 10 to the 25 molecules. That's a lot. Using some basic powers of 10 division, in every cubic centimeter of air, that's about 10 to the 19th molecules of air. 
that's still a lot of molecules to be bouncing around into things. And by bouncing into things, they transfer some of their energy to those things, causing the molecules in those things to heat up also, until they have the same amount of molecular motion and have reached the same temperature. That's how a basic analog thermometer works, like an old-school mercury thermometer or the ones with the red dye. Some digital thermometers also work that way, although the ones that have a gun-like thing and shoot a laser at something as a guide to help you uh, figure out what you're measuring the temperature of, those work in a different way that I'm not going to get into in this episode. It's not important for this episode. Anyway, back to the analog thermometer, the molecules in the thermometer equilibrate to the same temperature or the same amount of motion or the same energy as the substance in which they're immersed, usually air, or a mouth, or, well, somewhere else. Uh, With that in mind, they also want to radiate away that heat. You may recall, if you've been a very long-time listener or a recent one who's gone back into the archives, from episodes 5 and 7 really far back, on the Apollo moon hoax, there are three ways to transfer heat. Convection, conduction, and radiation. Convection here doesn't apply. It's the physical mixing of stuff. Conduction is what I just described, where the objects are physically touching and transferring heat that way. Radiation is where every object in the universe, really, that has any temperature above absolute zero, is going to radiate away light. This is a very slow process. It's really the slowest, usually, of three methods of heat transfer. But it gets really important in space where convection doesn't happen and where you don't have objects physically touching other objects because you're in a near vacuum. On Earth, when we're talking about a thermometer in air, the speed that the thermometer is radiating away energy is much, much slower than the energy that it gets by conduction, or loses energy by conduction if it's touching something that's colder than itself. But now, let's go up in Earth's atmosphere. There's still stuff that's there. The layer that is the topmost is the exosphere, a term that I used, um, actually, I think about seven minutes ago, or eight minutes ago. An exosphere is defined as gas molecules that are gravitationally bound to a body, but they're so far apart that they no longer really behave like gas, and they don't collide with each other, or they do so very, very rarely. For Earth, exosphere starts around 600 kilometers up, and it continues until it grades into whatever you'd like to consider the start of space. The layer of atmosphere below the exosphere is the thermosphere, which starts around 90 to 120 kilometers above the ground and goes up to 600 kilometers, the exosphere. That means that it's where most satellites are, and hence why Crow 777 was having issues. Well, in this particular case. The thermosphere does behave like a gas, but the molecules are still so far apart that they can't really convey sound. The temperatures of the thermosphere, as in the molecules that are moving around, are equivalent to a temperature of about 500 to 2000 degrees centigrade. That's pretty hot. But now we get to my questions from before. What does temperature even mean here, when the molecules are so far apart that you reach a point where radiative energy transfer can start to dominate? In other words, yes, each individual gas molecule in the thermosphere is hot. Hot meaning that its black body radiation spectrum gets up to the temperature of a small star, or maybe a really hot bonfire. And 
If one of those gas molecules collided with you, the energy transfer from that collision would be significant and the molecule of your skin may burn. But you're still radiating away heat energy. A spacecraft is still radiating away heat energy. And it's able to distribute and radiate away that energy, especially when engineers worked out what the thermal balance is going to be and designed systems to properly radiate away enough energy that the net balance is zero. In other words, you don't heat up any more than you radiate away. What I mean by that is, well, let's take the International Space Station as my example. It gets heat from probably three main sources. First, the sun, through both radiation and conduction from the solar wind. Two, conduction from gas molecules in the thermosphere. And three, electronic equipment running on it, and people for that matter also. Whenever any part of the International Space Station heats up, it's physically touching other parts through, well, touching. And so that means that the heat gets distributed throughout. It also has an enormous thermal control system which pumps material throughout the station to distribute that energy, that heat energy, or that temperature. The ISS absorbs and creates more heat than it can radiate away normally, and so engineers designed an external thermal control system which are large white panels. Those same pumping systems, or that same pumping system in general, that distributes heat around the space station also goes into the external thermal control system and helps to radiate that heat away. This is almost, almost the exact same as a radiator that you may have seen in your car, or on the back of a refrigerator or a freezer, or even a heat sink on a computer CPU or other computer component. On Earth, those extra pieces of metal have a large surface area to exchange heat through conduction to the external environment. In fact, if you're a real nerd, uh, what I sometimes do if I get really hot and my hands heat up or my toes heat up is I actually will spread my fingers apart. I spread my fingers apart because that increases the surface area, which means that more heat can be exchanged with the air around me because otherwise with my fingers touching, well, that's less surface area. Again, that's a real nerd thing, but hey, it happens when you study physics for over a decade. Uh, With that said, on the International Space Station, those extra pieces have a large surface area to allow for radiative heat transfer away from the station, and it was carefully designed to compensate for all of those sources of heat. The same goes for other satellites. We know the basic physics. We know how heat is transferred. We know how the thermosphere works. We know basic heat physics and energy exchange, and we can design systems to compensate for this stuff. If I might go on a mini side rant, what episode will be good without a mini rant, it always amazes me how stupid the pseudoscientists think that scientists and engineers are. The pseudoscientists will think that they are the only ones who ever, ever have had the thought that maybe this is going to be an issue and nobody else has ever considered this kind of thing and no engineer could possibly have designed a system to compensate for it. Therefore, it's impossible. This goes for satellite thermal control just as much as it goes for uh, the heat island effect of cities on temperature readings or even the amount of water vapor or carbon dioxide in the atmosphere with climate models. We've thought of this stuff. We've taken it into account. That means that it's not not impossible. Anyway, 
It may seem as though I've gone on a lot of different digressions in this discussion about temperature, but it all gets back to exactly what it means and how you measure it. On Earth, temperature seems pretty straightforward. But once you get into regions of the universe where the molecules are few and far between, uh, near vacuum, temperature takes on a different characteristic. And while individual molecules may be highly energetic and have a very large quote-unquote temperature, transferring that information, that energy, and thus heating up anything else is a much different story. And so that wraps up this episode on little things in space. Zero-G isn't really zero-gravity, it's microgravity. And it does get really close, but it's still not technically zero-G. There's no such thing in the physical universe as a true vacuum that we know of, and getting even really close to it in a lab on Earth is ridiculously hard, if not impossible. With near-vacuum comes the concept of temperature, and what it really means, and while the molecules in space are hot... That doesn't mean that taking a thermometer from your medicine cabinet and sticking it out in space is going to let it register above 2,000 degrees centigrade. So with that said, and no additional segments in that episode, I'll cue the outro music, and I hope that you listen next time. That wraps up this topic for the 165th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. I hope that you listened and enjoyed it, and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the comment, or you can leave a comment on the blog post for the episode, or on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can tweet me, at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, but I do ignore Twitter trolls. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Oh, and I don't block Twitter trolls, that's just kind of weird. But anyway, uh, moving on. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and random people on the intertubes that you'll never meet in real life. <laughs>